So I was reading this week about Rainy Pierce. Um, Rainy Pierce is a, uh, is a well-known open water swimmer, um, ultra swimmer. She's run, she runs, sorry, she's swam on numerous, numerous long races. And uh, she was recounting one of her more recent ones. I believe this was just last year that she did, the Kauai Channel, which apparently, I, this is totally unknown to me, totally foreign, um, but apparently one of the hardest open water swims in the world. Um, I, I, I do swim a little bit, but it, it's over at the Wildcat Center doing laps, and I, I hit half an hour and I tap out. So this is totally outside of my realm of knowledge. Um, the Kauai Channel is apparently 28 and a half miles. 28 and a half miles of open water swimming, which we saw some, I got to see some footage of it, and just very, very choppy, very hard waters to swim in. Um, the average swim time for those who finish it, I think ends up being about 20 hours of swimming. So, so while people are swimming it, they actually have to bring food and drink out to them so they can stay energized, and then they just do it all in the, in the water. Um, also of interest, it's shark-infested water. So, so as if it wasn't hard enough, there, there are sharks out there. Um, so consequently, when people do this swim, they, they, need, they need kayakers to go with them. They need boats to go with them. They take drones out. So Rainy took all the precautions. She, she did all of these things. And there she was a few hours into this swim before finally one of the drones picked up. A tiger shark was following her in the water. So, so they watched him for about 15 or so minutes. They, they did a number of things to try to deter the tiger shark. The kayaker went between them. A boat came between them. Like they did things to try to scare this tiger shark off. And yet the tiger, the tiger shark continued to show interest. So everyone can breathe calmly. Um, they, they did pull Rainy out of the water and her swim finished early. Again, only a few, only a few hours into what was going to be about a 20-hour swim through shark-infested waters. So as we've been going through the book of Jude, we've been looking at Jude's description of shark-infested waters. Jude, over and over again in this uh, short 25-verse book, has, uh, has communicated over and over again that the believers that he's writing to needed to be cautious because they are swimming in a world of sharks who are looking to, to to deter them from their faith, who are looking to steer them away from what it looks like to have a genuine relationship with Christ, to live a life of wantonness instead of a life of uh, submission and service to our Lord. Um, and, and this certainly isn't any different for us today. It's not like we can say, oh, well, that, that was Jude's context back then, but now today, I, I mean, there's, there's no sharks in the water now, Right? I mean, there might be even more in the water now with, with, uh, with blessings like the internet and, and all, sorts of other, all sorts of other forms of communication in our lives. Um, when we live our lives, so much of our lives wirelessly online, that we have, access, we have access to so many more sharks now. So how much more does this book mean to us and what it means for us to live. So just as Jude was so interested in painting a picture for his, for, his, for his context of what it means to persevere, what it means for God to keep, we will continue that theme in our final two verses today. We'll talk about what it means to be kept by God. 
What does it mean to be kept by God? Again, Jude, uh, the last two verses. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. This is Jude verses 24 to 25, and we'll, uh, we'll read this together. And then as we, uh, as we discuss this passage, we'll talk about what it means to be kept in the promises of God, and then we'll look at what it looks like to be kept by the power of God. But let's begin by reading his word. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I, Lord, I, I thank you for these verses in Jude, for these final two verses that you've given us. Lord, I thank you for all the truths that they scream about you and about your goodness and about your faithfulness and about your beauty. Lord, I pray that you, would just, um, that you would just touch our hearts in a new and unique way today with these realities. God, that we would have a greater understanding of who you are and what it means to be your people. Father, please just work powerfully during this time. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. So Jude ends this letter in a bit of an odd way. He begins with what's called, or he, he ends with what's called a doxology. Doxology really just means a praise. So typically with the end of these letters, you would, see, you would see the letter writers giving thanks for various things, for the ways that they've been helped, or the ways that they've seen God at work. Or, or you, you'll see them um, sending greetings to individuals, like, oh, make sure to thank Aristarchus for that cloak he sent. That was great. Um, like you, that's what you would typically see at the end of these letters. But here, rather, Jude ends in a doxology. He wants to end in praise of God. Now, one of the fun things about doxologies is typically they, they begin by describing something, something that God has done or something that God will do. And then, and then in the latter half of the doxology, it will tell us what it took for God to do that. What attributes, what characteristics, what, what things were required for this to actually be accomplished? And that's exactly what we see Jude doing here. So what, is, what exactly is it that he wants, us to, he wants to highlight in this doxology about God? Well, the beginning of verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. To keep you from stumbling. So again, this, the, this you here, now to, or sorry, this him here, now to him that's referring to God, okay? This is a praise to God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. What does Jude mean by keeping you from stumbling? I mean, there's a couple different ways we could go with this, right? I mean, is Jude talking about maybe that, maybe that God keeps you from sin? Well, that doesn't make sense, and that doesn't really fit with the rest of Scripture, or even with the book of Jude necessarily. I don't think that God keeps us from sinning once we become Christians. Certainly, I don't see that reflected in my own life. Um, so I don't think it's that. Uh, helpfully, we can look at other books that, that use very similar language to keep you from stumbling. And then those other passages, to keep you from stumbling, refers to apostasy to keep you from, from punting the faith, to keep you from rejecting God. So in other words, Jude here is giving praise to God who keeps us from rejecting the faith, who keeps us from punting the faith, 
The point that Jude is attempting to emphasize here is the assurance, the assurance that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion in the day of Christ. That's what he's attempting to emphasize here, that we can have confidence and assurance in God. Notice here, notice here, he doesn't emphasize in ourselves. It's not, it's not that I can have confidence because I'm such a great person or I'm so wise or I'm so smart or I do such good things or I'm so faithful or look at me, my faith is so big. That, that's not what he's emphasizing. He's emphasizing that our God is so big. And then this, this kind of assurance, this kind of perseverance, we see all throughout, the rest of the, all throughout the rest of Scripture. We see it in Jesus. In John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30, to 30 Jesus writes, or says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. They will never perish. This is a promise this is a promise from Christ that his sheep will never depart from him. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hands. I and the Father are one. There is confidence that God's sheep will never depart from him. Why? Because the sheep are so great? No, because the Father is so great. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. Paul, Paul makes similar statements. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 9. This is talking about God, um, a God who will sustain you to the end. He will sustain you in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of sufferings. He sustains us to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Verse 9, because God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, why, why can we have confidence? Because God is faithful. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 to 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be sealed? Well, he goes on to tell us in verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When we accept Christ, when we become Christians, when we, when we trust and when we repent, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is given to us and he is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the down payment so that we can have the utmost confidence because I have the Spirit, of, I have the Holy Spirit at work in me. I can have the utmost confidence that God will finish the work that he has started in me, that he will bring it to completion. But note here in Jude the tension that we see because God is the one who keeps the believer in verse 24. And in fact, we've, we've even seen that previously in this book. If you go back to Jude, verse one, um, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ or kept by Jesus Christ, right? So we've already seen that it's God who keeps us. God is the one who is working so profoundly in our lives. And yet, we just saw last week, verse 21, 
verse 21, that we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God. So which is it? There's this tension here. Is God the one who's keeping us? Or are we called to keep ourselves? How do we reconcile these two things? Um, I think it's helpful to look at passages like 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I, this is Paul who's speaking, I worked harder than any of them. All right, so Paul's, Paul's declaring, I worked and I strove and I fought and, and, and I did the things that I was called to do. But, but, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So in other words, as Paul continued to fight the good fight, as he continued to persevere, he recognized that it was actually God who was the one who was at work in him, always. God was the one who was preserving him. Or Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is talking about our continued perseverance in the faith, our continued growth in the spiritual life. We are called to work it out with, with fear and trembling. For, why? How can we do this? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why, uh, why can we continue to live the spiritual life? Because God is the one who's working in us. Because God is changing us. Because God is shaping us. Because God has a perfect plan. That's why we're able to do this. Not because of me, but because of him. Right? I, I can persevere because God preserves. So in other words, the spiritual life that we're envisioning that's being described by Jesus and by Paul and by Jude, the spiritual life isn't the sort of passive backseat, God is in control so I can kick back and take it easy sort of spiritual life. Rather, this is a spiritual life that's empowered by the Holy Spirit so that we can see amazing things done because God continues to preserve us. So the goal here, as we're, as we're looking at a God who keeps us, the goal here isn't this anxious need in the heart of the believer to go back over and over again to the foundation of our faith to make sure that foundation was really secure. Right? I've met so many who continue to go back and continue to wrestle with, okay, so, so I said the prayer, but I don't know if I really meant it that time, or I, I, I don't know that it was real, and so I need to go back and double check again, and continuing to go back over and over again, or, or those who have been baptized eight to 12 times, because they're just not sure, like, okay, but I don't know, and continue to go back time and time again to try to shore up the foundation. That's not the goal of the Christian life, to live in that kind of anxiety about whether or not, whether or not that was legitimate or have I, have I sinned so bad that maybe I've fallen away from the faith or have I, have I not been faithful enough or this or that where the focus over and over again is on me. Rather, the focus should be over and over again on him. It's not because I'm great. 
It's because he's great. And because he is great, I can have confidence. I can have confidence. Now, I know this is a struggle for so many because so many of you are sitting here wrestling with, but I've seen so-and-so, or I've seen this person who said the prayer and then have left the faith. Or even in our culture today where deconversions have become so, so popular, right? How do we, how do we reconcile these realities with, with biblical texts that scream out over and over again that those who are genuinely his, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. How do we reconcile these realities? It's not easy. Um, John, I think, gives us one of the clearest presentations. John, in 1 John 2.19, he states, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, in other words, they went out, they departed from the faith, they left the church, they no longer were a part of the church or the confession of Jesus Christ. Um, they were not of us for if they had been truly of us then they would have continued with us but they went out that it might be plain that they are all not of us in other words those who genuinely those who genuinely put their faith in Christ remain with Christ that doesn't mean there's not times of backsliding. That doesn't mean there's not, time, there's, not, there's not maybe even significant episodes of life of backsliding. But it does mean that God continues the good work that he began in them. And that might not always be evident to us. That might not always be clear. And that's why perseverance plays such a significant role because we, we stop and we look and we look at the trajectory over the long haul, even with our own lives, even with our own lives, as we go through times of backsliding, as we go through times of struggles, we hopefully should be able to sit back and to, and to recount that over the significant period of our life, we've seen continued growth. We've seen continued growth. We've seen perseverance, right? And ultimately, Ultimately, this is all because of God. This is the promise, this is one of the promises that he has given to us, that he continues to uphold us. Um, I, I think about, I think about my, my own kids um, and, just, uh, and just, just, just the significance of God continuing to uphold us, um, teaching our kids how to ride bikes. We started teaching our kids at a very early age and, you know, you start them off on the training wheels, and then they, they kind of grow some confidence there, and then you take off the training wheels, and they try to ride with just two wheels, and so then they fall because they have no balance, um, or at least my kids. Um, and then, and then so, so you have this period where you're having to run along beside them and, like, hold them up because they're always at a 45-degree angle going down the road. And they're really excited because they're like, look what I did. I rode my bike. And you're like, yeah, well, yeah, kind of. <laughs> right? That's, that's what God does with us. He holds us up like a good father. He continues to preserve us even, even in the midst of our stumbling, even in the midst of our failure, even in the midst of our sin. He continues to work powerfully to bring glory to himself. That's the first part of the promise. But there's a second part of the promise. The goal of God's preservation is this. Verse, verse 24, the second half. 
and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, with great joy. Now, this is huge. This paints a picture of our future hope and what we have to look forward to. This isn't a today experience. It's a later experience that we look forward to. And the end result, and the end result of God's preservation of his people is that someday we will be in his presence beholding his glory. We will finally be complete, no longer sinful, and we will be doing something that no human could do in this world. No one will, has ever been able to, to do enjoying the unmediated glory of God's presence. 1 Timothy 6.16 tells us that no one has ever seen God or, or, or is able to approach the God who dwells in unapproachable light. In fact, even Moses on Mount Sinai, even Moses who spent 40 days on top of a mountain and was so, was so enveloped by God's presence that he didn't need to eat or drink for these 40 days, he asked at the end of that time to see God's glory. And even him, even him, God said, kind of, I'm going to pass before you. You can't look directly at me. I'm going to pass before you, and you'll be able to see kind of the afterglow of my glory. And even that, even the afterglow of God's glory was significant enough to actually change Moses' physical appearance so that the Israelites could no longer look on him because he actually radiated God's glory. He had to wear a veil to protect them from God's glory. Right? That, that's what God's glory does to us. God's glory is so significant. And we are going to be in the presence, in the presence of God's glory for all eternity. Something that is way beyond our wildest imaginations. I mean, I just think about the sun. Not, not that there's a whole lot of that today, apparently, but I just think about the sun, and even the sun, which doesn't compare to God's glory, right? Even the sun, I have to wear protection. I have to wear sunglasses, and I have to wear, I have to wear sunblock to protect myself from the, skin, from the sun, and if I go to a higher elevation, if we go to Colorado or someplace like that, we have to be that much more cautious because apparently we're that much closer to the sun, right? Because we burn that easily, and even if, the, if even the sun and its glory can have that kind of physical effect on us, just imagine the glory of God, which far outpaces the sun. Just imagine the impact that that will have. In fact, you don't have to imagine the impact because Jude tells us the impact. Jude tells us with great joy. That will be the impact of being in the presence of God's glory, that we will experience a greater joy than we ever thought imaginable to be nestled in the person of Christ so that we can enjoy God's glory in a way that the rest of creation, nothing has ever been able to do. That's the future that we look forward to. These are the promises that God has so graciously bestowed on us, not because we're so great, but because he's so great. He's a good father who loves his children, and that love is an unstoppable, never-ending, never-giving-up force that he lavishes upon us. Now again, with the doxology, it begins by expressing what an individual has done or will do, and then goes on to praise the attributes or characteristics 
that make that action possible. So for instance, if I was gonna talk about the builder of my house, I would say something like, to him who built my house, to him belongs great wisdom and skill and care, right? Something that they have done and the attributes or characteristics that made that possible. And that's what Jude is doing here. Jude is highlighting God's work of preserving his people. But how does God preserve his people? Jude highlights the traits and the attributes of God that are the foundation for this preserving work. He underlines what it is about God that makes him such a secure anchor for us. Verse 25, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jude begins by identifying this fundamental truth that God is one, right? This is fundamental to what all Jew and all, what all Jews and Old Testament saints and what all Christians affirmed about God. This goes all the way back to, the, to, to Deuteronomy chapter six and the confession that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is fundamental to both faith and practice because it emphasizes, because it emphasizes that there is no one else There is no one else who can compete with God. There is no one who can deter his purposes. There's no one who can change what's going to happen. God is is unique. God is unlike anything else that is. God is one. Okay, that, that's why Jude is emphasizing that God is one. Consequently, consequently, our salvation that's described here, our salvation is secure. Our ultimate future rests on the hope of God's oneness. The oneness of, well, and of course, as Christians, we recognize that God is Trinity. Um, the oneness of this triune God. Um, this salvation we can have confidence in because there's no one else like him. And then Jude goes on to give us four attributes, four central attributes to accomplishing this preservation. The second half of verse 25, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Okay, so when it describes glory, notice it begins, notice Jude begins the list with glory. There's a reason for that. God's glory is kind of like a summary attribute that describes all of God's, uh, all of God's other attributes. It, it, it anchors them. It describes them in, in more of a kind of a total sort of way. In fact, it's fun. The word, the, the word for glory, both in uh, Hebrew and Greek, it actually reflects weightiness or heaviness, almost like, almost like a, a large rock. If you were to take a large rock, right, that, that his glory is heavy. There's an immensity to it, to the degree that it displaces other things. You take this large rock, and you put it into a bucket, a bucket full of water, and what does it do to that water? It displaces the water. The water has to move before the presence of the immensity of this rock, before the weightiness of this rock. That's what God's glory does. God's glory displaces other things. It's immense. His glory is this immensity that we get to enjoy, that we get to take in, that will displace all the other things of this world because it will be central in a way that nothing else has ever been central to our lives. That's what we get to enjoy. That's the attribute that's being destroyed here, that's being described here. It is the splendor, the beauty of the sum total of God's perfections. It's the demonstration of the total of everything that he is. That's his glory.
And not only is he glorious, but he's also majestic. He's also majestic. This points to God's place as king, as king, and therefore rightly to be made much of, rightly to be praised, rightly to be given honor. He is majestic. And not only is he majestic, but he also demonstrates dominion. He also demonstrates dominion. In other words, he is king over all things. He controls all things. Sometimes we use the word omnipotence to describe this. Every detail, everything in all of the world, in all of creation, in all of time is under his authority. He is providentially over it all so that all things work according to the purposes of his will. Consequently, God has a plan and we can trust that plan because he is the one working all things. We can have absolute confidence that we will indeed stand someday in the presence of his glory. Not only that, but he also has authority. He also has authority. This refers to God's right to rule over all things. As the creator and sustainer of all things, it is right that he has authority over all things. It is right that we pay him honor and, uh, and glory and praise. And all of these attributes, all these attributes that he's describing, this glory and his majesty and his dominion and his authority, they stretch on for eternity in both directions, both past and future. They stretch on for all of eternity. There is no end before all time and now and forever. They're not a consequence of our existence. They don't stop when I stop being. They go on for all of eternity in absolutely both directions. Because nothing changes God. Nothing changes him. He is, he is unable to be changed. He is always glorious. He is always majestic. He always has dominion. He always has authority. These realities are always true. And this, this, this description of all these amazing attributes, this is the God that preserves us. This is the God. These are the attributes needed to preserve you and me, which, by the way, should be really humbling to us, right? That is what's needed to steer my wayward heart back towards God. That is what's needed to bring me to the end where I will stand with him in his presence, in his glory, to enjoy him for all of eternity, that is what's needed. These are the attributes of God that are needed. All right? So nothing less would do. Parting of the seas, holding back the rain, turning water into wine, those things don't even begin to compare with causing the spiritually dead heart to beat for God. And that's exactly what he does. And even that, even that is nothing for a God so great as our God. He preserves us and there is no wandering from him because we have tasted the glory described here. Why are these attributes so powerful to preserve? Because we've gotten to taste them. Now only in part, but then in full. We have gotten a foretaste of glory divine. And as Peter cried out in John 6, um, 6 verse 68, 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. We have gotten to taste that glory. And now, where else would we go? Where else would we go? 
It is the taste of that glory. It is the taste of that beauty. It is the taste of his might that continues to keep us near to him. We have gotten a taste, and now we continue to cling to him. And his sovereign kingly rule over all creation continues to protect us like a mother's womb until it's time for us to be fully birthed into the presence of his great, of his great glory on that final day. And that's why Jude ends on this note, because he's overwhelmed by these realities, and he's celebrating the confident trust that we can have in God to deliver on these promises. And this, this leads to three applications, at least three applications. First, I've already hinted at, all of this should humble us. It should leave us humbled. So at first blush, it might be easy to walk away from something like this and to, and to, with, a, with a good amount of pride and to think, wow, look at me. I'm really amazing. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to persevere. That must mean I'm great. And to walk away and to feel very prideful and to feel very arrogant about this. And yet, at the same time, and the reality is, is, again, it's not about us. It's about him. It's about him. This should create humility. Because what we see when we look at this passage is not that we're so great, but that he's so great. It's not that we're so strong and tenacious and faithful and wise, but that despite the fact that we're not any of those things, that God's promises rest on his own glory and majesty and dominion and authority. This should humble us. This is what it took to draw our hearts to himself and to keep us. It took a God so great. It took a God so mighty, which should also move us to worship. Second, we should be encouraged. We should be encouraged that this is the God who is behind all of our working and striving. In other words, when you fight to delight in God, it's a glorious, majestic, all-powerful God with dominion that extends for all eternity who is actually fighting through you. He's the one who's doing the work. And that should be so incredibly encouraging. It's not piddly little you doing the best you can to scrape by. It's the God who sustains all creation without any degree of exertion. It's the God who, even at the mention of his name, causes the demonic legions to shudder. It's the God who loves you beyond our wildest reckonings that continues to fight. I'm reminded of the, of the episode of the prophet Elijah in 2 Kings 6 as, he's, uh, as the Syrian army is bearing down on this solitary prophet. He and his servants stand alone in the middle of this battlefield, completely surrounded, and his servant is terrified. And Elisha responds to his servant, why are you? Why would you be scared? Like, I don't, I don't get it. What, what are you missing? And his servant responds, well, because we're all alone, and look at this Syrian horde that's come against us. And Elijah responds, oh, oh, I get it. You don't actually see what's happening here. So he prays, and his servant's eyes open, and all of a sudden he becomes aware of the angelic army that's surrounding them that far outnumbers the Syrian forces in front of them. That's just a small glimpse at the power of God that's at work in every person who is his child. 
That is a small glimpse, small glimpse of what's happening in you that is preserving you in the midst of shark-infested waters. That is a small glimpse. The God that who is working you is far greater than any even angelic army. These realities should should invigorate us to follow him. Yes, we should be humbled, but we should also be emboldened to strive and to fight, to know him, to delight in him all the more. So that we are so so that we are a people who are who are blood blood bought and spirit wrought, fighting fighting to enjoy God more, fighting to to make much of him to our neighbors, fighting to share him with others, fighting to make disciples, fighting to to put sin down in our lives, fighting to see our families grow in the love of the Lord. And why are we able to do all these things? Because God is at work in you. Because God is doing something great, something far greater than what we can even begin to imagine. I think too often we settle. I think far too often we settle with piddly little things, with little trifles, when God wants to do so much more. This passage should leave you encouraged by the God who is keeping you. And finally, brothers and sisters, these realities should be a bomb to our soul and they should cause us, they, they should cause us to overflow in rejoicing. They should cause us to overflow in rejoicing because we have a hope that is so great that is waiting for us, that is far greater than anything that we will experience in this world. The, the, the trials, the struggles, even the joys of this world don't begin to compare with the glory that we have being in his presence where we will delight in him like nothing else has ever delighted our souls for all eternity. That is what we have waiting for us. So that if you, take, if you take your best moment here, if you take your most enjoyable thought, your most enjoyable moment, the, the greatest thing you could possibly imagine, it pales in comparison with what is waiting for us. This should cause us joy in the presence. Even in the midst of trials, even in the midst of hardships, even in the midst of pain, this should cause our hearts to rejoice because it's coming. It's coming. And what, what have we done? What have we done for such, for such amazing promises as these? What have we done to deserve any of this? I mean, the answer is obvious. It is not I, but Christ who is within me. Christ has paid it all, all to him I owe. Christ has paved the way through his cross and his resurrection, not only so we can rest secure in the hands of God, but so that we can have a delight in a future hope that is waiting for us, a hope that is bathed in the radiance of God's presence. If you try to find it on your own, in your own efforts, in your own merit, then you will never find rest. We have only one place to look, to Christ, to Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning, Lord. I thank you for the truths in these verses. God, I pray that you would continue just to enthrall our hearts with them, Father, that we would be humbled, God, knowing that we bring nothing and you bring everything, that we are not great, but you are so great. Lord, that we would be encouraged 
courage to fight to know you and to see you known and rejoiced in. And Father, that we would live a joy-filled life recognizing the future that lies before us. Father, you are good. I pray that we would recognize that and that we would live accordingly. We pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.